Chapter 4 of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume 1, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter 4 In my tenth year, I was sent to the Fredericksburg Classical and Mathematical Academy the principal educational institution in northern virginia the academy grew out of the school founded by the admirable clergyman of french descent james marl to which george washington went just a hundred years before our principal thomas hanson taught greek and latin in the central building other studies being in the wings under two assistants the scholars were of many counties and most of the historic families of Virginia were represented, though probably few of the youths knew or cared about their ancestors. I believe I was the youngest pupil, the ages ranging mostly between twelve and seventeen. The academy was under the auspices of St. George's Church, whose venerable rector, Dr. Edward C. McGuire, occasionally visited us. The Falmouth contingent was large, and there was some chafing between them and the Fredericksburg scholars. These called our village Hogtown, alleging that hogs were seen in the streets, and we retorted with Sheeptown, with what connotation I cannot remember. But this exchange of epithets caused no fights, albeit among us, about two hundred, there was a normal proportion of bullies and fisticuffs were not uncommon in the acre lot behind the school. Our recess games were chiefly chermeny and bandy, or hockey. An accidental blow from a bandy stick on my right eye laid me up in darkness with leeches. Though there was no visible sequel at the time, the eye became dim in after years, and finally became near-sighted. Most of us were preparing for some college, and the keys to every college were Latin and Greek. To these our time was mainly given, our readings being in Greca Majora and in school editions of Latin classics. I liked these studies, but hated mathematics. I found delight in The Scholar's Companion, from which we learned the Greek and Latin origin of many English words. My distinction was in penmanship, it was agreed that no rival could equal my pen-printing of German and other ornamental lettering. Once, Grandfather Conway asked me to show him some of my penmanship. I prepared with pains imitations of the signatures of himself, of my father, and uncles. "'Wonderful, indeed,' he said. Then patting me on the head, he added, with a smile, "'Yes, it is perfect, and—' I hope you'll never do it again. I wondered, but his word was law, and my facsimiles ended. Mr. Hanson, old Tommy, was an excellent teacher. He kept a switch beside him, but rarely used it, and his assistants were not permitted to inflict corporal punishment. He often made occasion to stimulate our sense of humor and instruct us in conduct and kindness. 
there was no religious teaching beyond the daily opening with scripture and a scarce audible prayer equality prevailed among us no one had any advantage in belonging to any wealthy or historic family the ancestral cult which arose with the national centenaries was unknown never did i hear george washington or any other american celebrity held up as an exemplar and this was the case not only in our school but in the community with the exception that mary the mother of washington was held up as a model of piety and a place pointed out near her monument where she was said to have retired for prayer i got high marks in latin and greek but had no enjoyment in the books read later i found among the old books of grandfather daniel english translations of virgil's aenid and ovid's metamorphoses and read them with delight though i had gone through both in the original without much interest save in the mark i was to get mr hansen who had enthusiasm for classical literature fancied i think that he had in me a ten-year-old appreciator of the same sometimes on returning to the school after recess he might have observed me at my desk and supposed that the playground was left for the charms of caesar or horace but it was for pastimes with oliver twist little nell or other creations of my prospero whose mask filled our prosaic streets charles dickens came like one of our rappahannock freshets which once or twice rose high enough to float logs in our wood cellar methodist prejudices against novel reading were in this case floated and i remember my parents laughing and weeping over the books of boz while i was only old enough to build infant romances out of cruikshank's illustrations dickens supplied our homes with new fables phrases types our neighbor douglas gordon broke a small blood vessel laughing over pickwick and we pitied him not for the lesion but because his doctor forbade him to read dickens my baby brother richard acquired by his infant excitability the sobriquet tim lincolnwater in eighteen forty two news came that charles dickens had arrived in america and presently it was announced that on a certain day he was to pass through fredericksburg on his way to richmond he was to come by steamboat from washington to aquia landing thence by stage to fredericksburg alighting only for lunch at farmer's hotel the prospect of setting eyes on the greatest man in the world filled me with such emotion that my parents agreed that i might in their name ask mr hansen for the necessary permission to leave school a little before the midday recess the usage when we wished to leave the schoolroom temporarily was to stand silently before the master this i did but he happened to be irritated by some one in the class he was hearing and motioned me off on my endeavouring to say i had permission of my parents he ordered me to my seat thither i returned jumped out of an open window seven or eight feet from the ground and reached the inn just as the author was alighting 
On my return to school just after recess, there was a dead silence. My leap had been observed by many, and none knew the reason for it. Mr. Hanson stood pale and agitated, for I had been hitherto obedient. My brother Peyton was absent, and I was too much dazed by the situation to arrest by any plea the impending switch. It was the only flogging I ever received in school, and feeling that it was unmerited, I bore it without a word or a tear. But tu comprenda, se tu pardonne. The dear old master, when he learned the whole story, was more troubled than I was, for I had got a good look of Dickens. During my remaining five years in the school, he treated me with a sort of affection, and when I left and entered college in my sixteenth year, he announced the fact in school and uttered a eulogy on my conduct and diligence. My most lasting education in all those years was in the law courts and in listening to discussions of cases in our house. My opportunities were of the best. Two of my father's brothers were prominent lawyers, John Moncure and Eustace, and the latter became an eminent judge. My grandfather Conway, clerk of the county, had been educated for the bar. His eldest daughter married Richard Moncure, afterwards the chief justice of Virginia. On my mother's side, her uncle, Peter Daniel, was a justice of the United States Supreme Court, and her brother, Travers Daniel, long attorney general of Virginia, had a wide reputation for learning and eloquence. My father's position as presiding magistrate of the county brought many lawyers to our house for consultation. When some great case was to be argued in Fredericksburg, especially when one of my uncles was to speak, I was permitted to go to the courthouse at cost of a brief absence from school. My vacations were mostly passed at Airlessly, and in the courthouse I found my theatre, and witnessed many a comedy and tragedy. I can still hear the ringing laughter attending the efforts of lawyers to trip each other or the witnesses. Face after face of the prisoners rise before me. Opposite the courthouse was the jail, a whited sepulchre to my eyes, from whose small grated apertures looked murderous phantoms. I see them brought out, handcuffed, and follow them to the courtroom, and feel the awe of a fellow man dragged prematurely before the bar of God, where the balances are produced, and all the deeds of his life cast into their scale. It was, of course, the murder cases that made the deepest impression. The juries consisted of men whom I was accustomed to see in their commonplace work, but after I had seen them in court, with faces intent for hours in trying to get at the fact and the truth, these neighbors were never common again. In murder cases, it was necessary that Uncle Richard Moncure, the prosecuting attorney, should be confronted with a powerful advocate, and when one had to be appointed by the court, the defense was often entrusted to the elder John L. Maria of Fredericksburg. He was, in appearance, 
as French as his great-grandfather James Maria, who came from Europe to preach to the Huguenots in Virginia, and founded St. George's Church in Fredericksburg, and the first school there. From Maria's interestingly homely countenance, there was unsheathed in pleading a spirit which often filled me with wonder. When he appeared in the Stafford courtroom, everybody knew that some prisoner's case was hard to defend. It was said that before entering on his final speech in defense, Maria slipped over to the inn and drank two cups of a tear-producing tea. The pathos and the tears invariably came. I remember a speech by Maria in which a question of interpreting a person's compromising utterance was raised. The advocate warned the jury against taking words at foot of the letter, and claimed that the prosecutor, Uncle Richard, good churchman that he was, would not venture to take literally the words of Jesus, If a man smite thee on one cheek, turn to him the other. He added, And if a thief were to steal my honored friend's cloak, would he give the rogue his coat also? Uncle Richard made no special reply to these words, and they sank deep into my mind. While at the bar, Uncle Richard steadily refused to advocate any case, whatever the fee offered, in which he detected any injustice. This was so well known, that when he did undertake any case, it was generally equivalent to a judicial decision. The lawyers were said to be much relieved when he was transferred to the bench. Again and again, as prosecuting attorney, did he take some criminal, unable to procure competent counsel, under his protection, and see that in the face of public prejudice, justice did not swerve. I remember vividly a scene of this kind. A very brutal rogue, notorious for his violence, had killed a man, and there was general satisfaction that the county was now to get rid of him by the gallows. He was a criminal of very repulsive appearance, and his defiant glare around the courtroom excited horror and wrath. The crowd already saw the noose round his bull-like neck. Uncle Richard arose and calmly said, May it please your honor, I mean to prosecute this man for murder in the second degree. Murmurs of surprise and anger were heard. During this manifestation, the prosecutor said not a word, but seemed to be absorbed in arranging his papers. When he began his speech, it was with sublime sentences concerning justice. Then he proceeded to show that it was a case of homicide which, albeit guilty, was committed without any deadly weapon, and that there was no evidence of deliberation. In my novel, Pine and Palm, I have disguised in Judge Sterling traits of this beloved uncle, whose greatness of mind and character raised above me a standard to which I have always paid homage. There was such intimacy between him and my father and their families that this uncle's house, Glencairn, was another home to me. No word of unkindness, 
thoughtlessness, or of depreciation ever came from him. Affectionate, simple, full of sympathy and humor, we could always approach him, and occasionally, when, on his way to his office, in a separate building, he would pause a few moments to join in our outdoor sport. There was a wide impression in the county that Chief Justice Moncure was a child outside his profession, and among the illustrations of this it was told that on seeing his negroes removing a cider press, he undertook to help them by supporting a crossbeam with his shoulder, in order that it might not be broken by a fall. In this effort he struggled until his face was red, and at last cried, I can support it no longer. It, it must fall. Get out of the way. His shoulder was withdrawn, but the beam remained fixed in the air, and it took the workmen some time to get it down. On one occasion, a deputation of jurists journeyed from Richmond to Glencairn to consult him on some important matter, and found him in his front garden, green bag in hand, playing puss in the corner with the children, among these being a little negro boy, who was just calling out, Now run, Mars Dick! Among the many legends concerning the later life of this Chief Justice, one tells that when he was very ill at Staunton, where the court was sitting, and felt his end near, he reminded his wife that their pecuniary circumstances had been much reduced since the war, and begged her not to carry his body to Glencairn for burial. The state, he said, would defray the expenses of his burial wherever he died, and the cost of the removal of his body to Stafford would be heavy. His wife, overwhelmed with grief, said that she must refuse what might be his last request. In vain he entreated, and at length exclaimed, then I'll not die here at all. And sure enough, he arose and lived several years after. He died in 1882, and was buried in the family graveyard at Glencairn. Uncle Richard perceived my fondness for reading, and sometimes took me to his office and sat me in a corner with a book. One afternoon, I was absorbed in an old law book on medical jurisprudence, which contained examples of mental and moral delusion. Optical and other specters were raised and laid, ghosts legally analyzed, and the problems of responsibility dealt with in a lucid way, which enabled me to take some steps in real thinking. Sometimes Uncle Richard talked to me about our academy, my favorite studies, my schoolmates, of whose parents or ancestors he related pleasant anecdotes. Of religion he never spoke to me. He was the most eminent layman of the Episcopal Church in northern Virginia, and represented St. George's Parish in the great church conventions, but he rarely conversed about doctrines. He hated all intolerance. When someone spoke sharply of a clergyman's leaning towards Mariolatry, Uncle Richard said, If we reverence Jesus, we would naturally reverence his mother. When I first met him after becoming a Unitarian, he treated me with the wanted affection, 
and made no allusion to my change of faith. One judicial action of Chief Justice Moncure is of historical interest in connection with slavery. Our neighbor, Mrs. Coulter, bequeathed freedom to her numerous slaves. But after the clause of liberation, the will said that if her negroes preferred to remain in slavery, they might select their masters. The husband of the heir contended that the clause giving the slaves this choice, not legal in Virginia, invalidated the liberating clause. The case reached the Court of Appeals, and a majority of the court sustained the heir's contention. The Negroes, to whom Mrs. Coulter, as was proved, had long promised freedom, remained in slavery until liberated by the war. Chief Justice Moncure vehemently pronounced the decision contrary to both law and equity. His minority opinion is now supported by every jurist in Virginia. The case was decided not long before the secession, when the southern people were infuriated, and to this feeling the injustice is generally ascribed. The outrageous wrong was reported in the northern papers, and it is the more important that I should record here this protest of the Chief Justice. The only church in Falmouth was, and is, a Union House. Catholics and Unitarians were unknown in our region, and I remember no Episcopalian service in Falmouth, but between Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians, the village had two and sometimes three sermons every Sunday. Now and then, some peripatetic propagandist appeared. I remember the impression made on me by a female preacher, the only one I ever heard in Virginia. A good-looking man sat beside her in the pulpit, but uttered no word. The lady, middle-aged, refined, comely, arose without him or prayer, laid aside her gray poke bonnet, and gave her sermon, of which I remember the sweet voice and engaging simplicity. I also remember that a hypercritical uncle, Dr. J. H. Daniel, praised the sermon. The walls in the vestibule of Falmouth Church were thickly covered with caricatures of various preachers and leading citizens, penciled by irreverent youth while waiting to escort the ladies home. Probably the contrarious dogmas set forth from a union pulpit may have had a tendency to keep clever youths from taking any of them seriously. Among our elders there was a keen interest in the controversies, for which I think must have usually characterized the sermons for I do not recall one that contained anything for a child. The discussions in our house about Calvinism piqued my curiosity. My parents were once much amused by a narrative given them by learned John Minor, on one of his calls, of which I managed to get in after years an exact version. A Presbyterian preacher visited him, John Minor, to remonstrate against his abstention from church, alleging the unhappy influence of his indifference to religion. 
but how am i to acquire interest in religion said i through the influence of the holy ghost said he how am i to obtain that influence by prayer what can my lips move the holy ghost the holy ghost moves you to pray it appears that i cannot get religion till i pray for it and i cannot pray for it till i've got it the congregations in falmouth included the elite but it was different in the methodist conventicle in fredericksburg i do not suppose that any one attending the present neat methodist church there remembers the room where their predecessors assembled it was a low-roofed shanty built of planks by john cobbler father cobbler had been a carpenter and a local preacher to the town in seventeen eighty nine but having married a widow possessing slaves it was decided that he must not preach he manumitted the slaves but did not resume preaching i remember his benign look serene face and bald head i recall but one preacher a square-jawed man with grating voice with the exception of our family and uncle eustace conway and john cobbler the congregation were mostly poor and ignorant the women generally wore drab gowns and quakerized bonnets there was no choir and no organ the hymns led by a good man with a cracked voice and a tuning fork were crooned in unison it was pleasant to drive over in our big round coach and back but i saw my cousins and playmates on their way to the fine churches and in my tenth year going to the meeting-house began to be a half-conscious martyrdom i have a vague remembrance of humiliation by some boys jesting references to methodists several times i had been taken by relatives to the episcopal church and it was a family joke that i declared myself an organ christian i was painfully precocious and old enough to be troubled by the contrast between our methodist and our social environment i was not happy in this double life i envied my playmates their sparkling worldliness and their indifference about their souls in fair weather i walked over to the meeting and passed the doors of the two handsome churches st george's and the presbyterian to the poor quarter called liberty town to kneel amid ugliness and dream of beauty however towards the close of eighteen forty one the methodists completed their new church and cobblers was turned over to the negroes but still there was no organ happily there was no christmas service in the methodist church and on that day i went to st george's the ancient church which had stood for a hundred years and which the washingtons and other historic families had attended possessed an antique dignity not discoverable in the present edifice i remember vividly my first christmas in st george's perhaps my eleventh year how beautiful it all was 
i sat in the cushioned pew with beloved relatives near the rector's wife granddaughter of betty lewis washington's sister and surrounded by elegant people the church was festooned with evergreen which seemed to find voice in the gloria with its soft and tender duet thou that takest away the sins of the world my heart was at peace and i was prepared to listen to the gospel of peace as it came from the lips of the childlike old rector dr mcguire with his noble countenance with charming simplicity without heat or gesture read a poetic discourse picturing a world at peace when a new star was kindled in the sky then from the choir broke forth the christmas hymn while shepherds watched their flocks by night that carol came to me as if from the very angels on the first christmas day just above the red screen was visible the lovely face of the chief singer whose tender voice carried the song into the depths of my heart often had i read the story in the new testament i could repeat every word of it from memory but then and there the glad tidings first reached me i had never before seen the young singer who led the choir i afterwards learned that her name was ella rothrock and am told that she married and is living in philadelphia as of nineteen o three she is not likely ever to know that her voice first raised for a boy she never saw the star of a love for all mankind shepherds angels star long ago turned to a fairy tale the happy tears unsealed by glad tidings of joy for mankind have changed to tears of grief at tidings of war and woe for mankind yet when past seventy i listen to the melodies that then moved me above them all comes the voice of the singer of st george's church repeating with new meaning the burden of the carol fear not the angel cried for dread had seized their troubled mind glad tidings of great joy i bring to you and all mankind to this song my heart responded in boyhood my reason responds to-day religion whose end and aim is not human happiness on earth is a cruel superstition after this memorable christmas experience i observed that the methodist meeting ended sooner than at st george's and that by enterprise i could reach the gallery there and hear the last hymn my parents were too wise to object to my device i was indeed allowed now and then to attend the whole service and was trained by that choir above all by ella rothrock's singing to a passionate love of sacred music to our great delight my sister mildred developed musical taste and a sweet voice there was a good music teacher in fredericksburg and my father bought a fine piano so fast as sister learned her notes i also learned enough to play hymn tunes i got the st george tune book and found the tunes that charmed me first of all the gloria in excelsis and nativity 
then old hotham olympia bethlehem mornington dundee one that had delighted me being actually named conway i learned to play them all i set my mother sister aunts to singing them joining in myself with a fervent second end of chapter four